0: There's been no shortness of excitement with the story of Israel over the past 18 months of their existence, the part that we're studying. They have seen God's great deliverance and provision and a symbol of his presence, and yet their default response is not thanksgiving and praise and worship, it's grumbling and complaining. Are we there yet? This food is disgusting. I want to go back home to Egypt. They've grumbled about their food, about their water, their leaders, and they still have 38 and a half years left before they cross over into the promised land. It's going to be a long trip. At least for those who make it that far. And for those who don't make it that far, it's going to come to a quick end because of their defiance. In chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam complain about the leadership of Moses and God responds with temporal yet merciful judgment on them. They learn their lesson, but there are other leaders who are not convinced that Moses and Aaron are the best leaders. They're not convinced that the one that God has put in front of them are are the best and so they grumble against them. And so here we have this... uh, this event that takes place in chapter 16 that shows who God's appointed leader is. In chapter 16 through 18, a Levite is going to lead a rebellion against the chosen mediator Aaron. And these rebels think that they have authorization from God that they're doing God's will. And they're going to learn their lesson. But there are other leaders who are not convinced that they are God's chosen leaders, and. And um, and they're going to have to answer to God as well. They they think that that God or that Aaron and Moses are shutting them out from God's presence. They think that they should get the same privileges as the high priest. And so here you have a Levite who's leading a rebellion against a high priest. But let me take a few seconds to explain the difference between a Levite and a priest, because I often speak about them, assuming that you know the difference. All priests are Levites. But not all Levites are priests. So let me just show you um, here on the the slide. The the center of God's presence or the symbol of God's presence is right there in the center with the tabernacle, the 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 later on the temple, the expression of God's glory is there. And around the outside of that are the Levites. So you have to the east, you have Aaron's family. Aaron's family are part of all of the Levites that surround the, the temple area. But Aaron's family are special in that they are the ones who are given the responsibility, he and his sons, to be the high priest, or he's the high priest, and they are to be the priests. But you have these other three groups that are around the outside. You have Merari and Gershon and the other one, you can read it, Kohath. Those three groups are part of the Levites, but they're not part of the priestly family. They don't have the ability to just go in unauthorized into the temple, into the tabernacle, I should say. So all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So here we're going to have Korah, who's a member of the Levite tribe. He has that responsibility to have some protection over the worship and the sacrifices, but he's not a priest. And he thinks he he ought to have a better privilege than he does. And so the question that's going to be answered in chapter 16 is, does any common Levite have the the right to approach God? And God's response is going to be clearly no. Not just any Levite can come into my presence. In chapter 17, the, the question is going to be, does Aaron have the right to, to approach God? Chapter 17 is the story of, of uh, Moses taking all the staffs of the, of the tribes, putting them into the tabernacle overnight, and only Aaron's buds and blossoms and, and brings about these almonds. And so God's answer to that is, is Aaron authorized to come into my presence? The answer is yes, only Aaron. And then in chapter 18, the question is going to be, what value then do the Levites have? If, if we as Levites don't have the ability to come into your presence, then what value do we have? And God's going to remind them. Listen, I, I have great value for you even though you're not a priest. It's great privilege and responsibility. Let me begin reading our text here in verse 1. And um, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we will cover the whole chapter today. So let's start in verse 1 chapter 16. This is the Word of God. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pileph, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some some of the sons of Israel. Two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose he will bring near to himself. Do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow uh, in the presence of the Lord tomorrow and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy you have gone far enough you sons of levi then moses said to Korah, hear now you sons of levi is it not enough for you that the god of israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to date them and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come up. It is not enough that you have brought us up out of a land of, uh, flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness but you would also lord it over us as well? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses became very angry and said to to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they, b- uh, along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty fire pans, also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it, and laid incense on it, and they stood in the doorway at the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah and assembled. All the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all the flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Corinth. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram, with the elders of Israel following him, and he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents, along with their wives, and their sons, and their little ones. Moses said, "...by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord." As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said, The earth may swallow us up fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 who were offering the incense. In this chapter, we have a sobering warning from the negative example of Israel and their defiance against God's appointed leaders. And we learn that those who approach God in their own terms will be judged by Him. Those who approach God on their own terms will be judged by Him. Here we're introduced, in verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to the opposition party. First, it's Korah. Korah is a Levite, not a priest. He's from the family of Kohath, so the southern group there, the ones who are on the southern part of the of the, um, the tabernacle. And Korah's responsibility as part of the family of Kohath, we learned from chapter 3, was that he had the responsibility of going in and taking all the sacred objects out of the tabernacle in order to transport them. Now, before they could go into the tabernacle itself, the, all the objects would have to be covered, but, but that was Kohath's responsibility. All of the furniture, we could say, the Ark of the Covenant, the bronze uh, altar that's outside of the tabernacle, the, the lampstand, the table of presents, so on, they were all to be carried by the family of Kohath. But this was not enough for Korah. He wanted more. He wanted the priesthood as well. Notice where he is in relationship to this other group that defies the leadership. At the end of verse one, we read that um, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So notice right below uh, Kohath's family is this these three tribes: Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And so. Dathan and Abiram are actually from Reuben's tribe. So it makes sense that their camps are kind of near each other. Their tents are near each other. And so they're they're talking at night, maybe sitting around the fire, eating their meal and, and um, thinking about how rough of a life they have. And, and Korah eventually persuades, apparently, Dathan and Abiram to lead a coup against Moses and Aaron. Their action begins here in verse 2. They rise up against Moses, it says at the beginning. The content of their complaint is seen at the end of verse 3 in this quotation. They say to Moses and Aaron, You have gone far enough. You have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them. So here's their problem. You think you're so special because you are part of the priesthood. You're not that special. In fact, we are all holy to the Lord. Now, is there any truth to what they're saying? Were they all, in some sense, holy to the Lord? Turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Let's see if Korah had anything. Dathan and Abiram if they had anything to what they were saying. Was it just the priesthood that was holy or were each of the individual members of the congregation holy to the Lord? Let's start in verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So here he's talking, this is God speaking to all of Israel. And notice what he says in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom... So a whole nation of priests and a holy nation. You are a nation of holy ones to me. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So this was not just meant for that current congregation. It's meant for ongoing congregations of Israel. This is something to be passed on. You are holy to the Lord. You are set apart for God's purposes. Now turn back to Numbers chapter 16 and notice, that Korah actually had something to his his problem, right? You're not the only ones who are holy. We're holy too. And, in fact, God had made that clear even last week when we saw in chapter 15, He reminded them with the blue cords that they were just tied to their tassels of their robe. This was a reminder that they were holy to the Lord, that they were set apart to obey God's commands, to be unlike all the other nations, to live in compliance, Moses. So, if they were right in their assessment that they're all holy to the Lord, then where is the error? Why open up the earth and swallow a people who are actually speaking truth? What's wrong with what they said? Well, their error is not in saying that they were holy to the Lord, but rather in claiming the right to come before God in the way that God did not authorize. So, notice the end of verse 3. So, why do you exalt yourselves Above the assembly, here's the implication: You priests, you exalt yourselves as if you're better than everyone else, as if you're the only ones who can come into God's presence with authorized worship. Well, we can do that too. You see, just because they were God's holy people didn't mean they had the same role as everyone else, or that they could self, uh, self, determine their own roles. Right? It would be like you as an employee of a company complaining to your boss that you thought you should be able to call the shots because after all, you are you have stake in the company. Part of the reason that the company exists is because of you. You're helping to sustain it. And so you should have the right to, to call the shots. And there is some truth in that, right? You do have stake in the company. You do have a responsibility and, and a, a great privilege to be a part of that. But That doesn't mean that you get to call the shots. That doesn't mean you have the same role as your boss does. So it would be like an employee saying to his boss, why have you exalted yourself over us? So there are two errors of Korah's rebellion. First, thinking that equality in quality is the same as quality in function. Thinking that equality in quality is the same as function. So that is, Hey, listen, as far as boss, employee, we're we're the same quality, right? But that doesn't mean we have the same function. The same thing is true in Israel. Just because you're the same quality, the same essence, effectively, doesn't mean you have the same function. And secondly, they were attributing evil motives to Moses and Aaron. As if Moses and Aaron exalted themselves over the people. And there's a certain kind of smugness to their defiance against authority. Isn't it interesting that they have this air of godliness? They, their desire is that they want to approach God, but they don't want to do it through God's means, do they? They want to do it on their own. And so they attribute evil to Moses and Aaron. In, in the process, they're looking spiritual. And yet, in reality, when we think about it, Moses and Aaron did not appoint themselves to the positions of Israel's leaders, Israel's priests. In fact, Moses didn't even want the job. Remember what happened when God called him in Exodus 3? I can't even speak. God chose him anyway. And the same is true for Aaron according to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 that he was not one who self-appointed was self-appointed as priest. He accepted the call of God on his life and and did it that way. And so there is a certain smugness that they have in their defiance as if Moses and Aaron are exalting themselves or not. So the first thing that we see is that the, the feigned holiness of the rebellious in verses 1-3. through 3. The second thing that we see in verses 4-7 through 7 is the faithful stand against the rebellious. The faithful stand. Now notice verse 4 because it's kind of ironic that I call this the faithful stand when the first thing that Moses does is he falls on his face. So why do I say that? I call it a faithful stand because Moses is not going to allow this kind of rebellion to exist or to spread and so he stands up against it he recognizes that there's no convincing these rebels but what he doesn't want to see happen is is to see them take down some other people take them down the same road so he says here in verses 5 and following let's take this before the Lord let's let God be our arbiter Hey, you're you're not going to agree with me. You're so proud, Moses is effectively saying, you're so proud in the way that you look at your situation, you're not going to agree with me or even uh, submit yourself to human reason. Not in a bad way, but, but in just reasonable conversation, you're not going to do that. So here, let's let God decide. And here's the idea to which Korah actually agrees. Moses says in verse 7, Bring your censors. All of you, all of you who are in opposition to the priesthood of Aaron, bring your censers tomorrow full of incense and let's see if God accepts it or not. That will be the really determining factor, right? Who is the priest? Whose worship does God authorize? Or, or who is the mediator of Israel? That's really the question. Faithful stand against the rebellious. In verses 8-11 through 11, we see the ignored privilege. Of the rebellious. What they didn't see, and we'll see this again in chapter 18, is that God had given Korah and the company of Koath, the group of Koath, the family of Koath, great privilege. Moses, essentially here in these verses, agrees with Korah that they are set apart as holy. You know, in a sense, you're right, Korah. God has set you apart for great purposes and has given you great responsibility. You are holy, but not the same kind of holy as Aaron. It's not talking about spiritual here. We're not talking about who's more spiritual, although we we know from the outcome of the story who is. He's not saying Aaron's more spiritual. What he's saying is you're set. Aaron set apart in a different way. So think about it like, um, like the uh, the Mount Sinai when they came to Mount Sinai the congregation in general were not allowed to even come near the mountain, the base of the mountain. They couldn't even touch it. What would happen if they touched it? Or an animal. They would die, right? Whatever person or animal touched that mountain, they would die. But there was a group, a larger group of 70, who could go up with Moses to a certain extent, but then they had to stop. And then there was a smaller group inside of that. They were able to go up a little farther. And then Moses was able to go all the way up to the top. That there's some kind of level... we could say holiness in terms of how god allows people to go and come into his presence the same thing is true in the tabernacle right you had all the congregation who was allowed to be around the outskirts of the tabernacle but only the the family of aaron well you you have the priests who and the levites who are allowed to to kind of care for the objects of the temple tabernacle and then you had the family of aaron who actually could go inside and help with the the sacrifices, and only Aaron himself could go into the most holy place. So you kind of have these levels of, you want to think about it, like levels of security clearance to come into the presence of God. And yet they didn't see what great advantage they had in being part of the worship of Israel. Moses wants them to see that, that they have failed to appreciate the privilege that they had. They should have seen the value and necessity of their work for God and that their job was to be faithful, not to try to aspire to an office that God would not allow. God was saying, that this, this office of priesthood is off-limits to you, but be thankful for the office that you have, the, the, the responsibility that you have. Use it for the, sake of your, for, for the sake of God's glory. Notice how serious this covetous rebellion is in verse 11. Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against, and we would expect... Aaron, but it says, "But against the Lord." So to defy the the appointed leader that God has put in place, the the appointed mediator is to defy God Himself. We'll talk about that more in the end. Number four, we see that the blind we see the blind arrogance of the rebellious, the blind arrogance of the rebellious in verses twelve through fourteen. Korah was not the only one involved in this insurrection. He he enlisted a neighboring tribe with him, at least a couple of men from there, Dathan and Abiram. When Moses called to have Dathan and Abiram come and talk about it. Notice what they say at the end of verse 12. We will not come up. And then at the end of verse 14, we will not come. We're not going to come up. This gives us a window into how people who rebel against authority work they don't really want to have the issue resolved. They don't really want to resolve the conflict or to do what is right. They simply want to air their grievances. See, Moses is ready to talk about it, and too, with Dathan and Abiram, he, he's ready to resolve the opposition, but they're like, we don't want to talk. And that's often the nature of those who defy authority. They'll, they'll often lob a grenade that creates conflict and then run and hide and watch the damage from a distance because they don't ultimately want to see a resolution. They don't ultimately desire peace and structure and doing God's will. And so they send a message back here, Dathan and Abiram. They send a message back to Moses misrepresenting their former and current situation. Look at how how terrible of a statement they make. They claim that Moses was evil in bringing them out of Egypt. Verse 13, It's not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. Moses, you were evil in your intentions. The reason you brought us out of Egypt was not to deliver us. It was to kill us. And notice how they refer to Egypt. surprising. Verse 13, You have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. They're not talking about Canaan there. When we think about a land flowing with milk and honey, we're thinking promised land. But they're saying, you brought us out of that. You already brought us out of a prosperous, agricultural, rich land in order that we would die in the wilderness. What you fail to do, Moses, is bring us into, verse 14, you fail to bring us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, we're in this kind of hellish kind of state. I wish you would have just left well enough alone. I wish we would have been back in Egypt where we belonged. It was much better there. Notice this question at the end of verse 14. Would you put out the eyes of these men? In other words, as leaders, they're saying, Dathan and Abiram, Moses, are you going to continue to blind these people into thinking that you actually have something good for them? Are you going to continually blind them, take out their eyes, this whole scheme of a good plan? You don't have a good plan. You took us out of something good and you brought us to something evil and we're not going to something good. Why should we trust you? They don't want to talk about it. They simply want to err. Their grievances. They're, they are blindly arrogant. Number five, we see the just judge of the rebellious in verses 15 through 40. The just judge of the rebellious. The accusers and the accused stand before God in verses 15 through 19. At least Moses prescribes that. Moses has talked about it as long as he can. Now it's time for God to speak. And so Moses says to God, Have your way with these accusers. I have not done any evil to them. I have not stolen anything from them. I have not brought them into the wilderness to die. It's not about me. It's not about my will. No matter what they say, no matter how they spin it. And then Moses speaks to Korah in verses 16 and 18 and says, listen, you think God will accept you and your incense? And let's find out. Hey, you think you've got this all figured out? Let's, let's, let's uh, have you bring your fire pans of incense tomorrow and see what God will do. And then notice this powerful image in verse 19 at the end of the verse. And the glory of the Lord appeared. So it's as if Moses and Korah are going back and forth to see who's right. And then it's like your father shows up. It's time for him to have a say in the the matter. In verses 20 and 21, we see the judge's response against rebellion. Finally, the judge speaks. He whispers to Moses and Aaron and says, Run. Run far away from these people so that I can destroy them and tell all your friends to do the same. Korah was wrong. Moses was right. In verse 22, Moses and Aaron appeal to God. They've seen this movie before. They know that when God comes down with His wrath, He's ready to destroy any who have a hint of opposition. Moses says, Please. When one man sins, don't judge them all. Give them an opportunity for, for repentance. In verses twenty-three through thirty, we see the precision of judgment. The question has been: who has the right to approach God? Is it Aaron? Aaron's going to come with his fire pan of incense, but also then Korah and all these other 250 are going to come with their fire pans of incense. Who has the right to approach God? Who is the authorized mediator of Israel? And God's judgment is very precise. He opens up the ground and only swallows those who defy Him. Moses uses this as a teaching opportunity. He says in, um, in verses 28-30, through 30, Listen, congregation, learn from this. Watch what God does to those who oppose His leaders. Notice again the defiance against God's leaders in verse 30. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned, and notice the Lord. They have spurned the Lord. God is very precise in His judgment and the judgment comes in verses 31-35. to 35 this group of rebels and accusers had already received this sentence of death. Right, The whole congregation had received a sentence of death because they failed to believe that God would bring them into the promised land. So everyone 20 and older had a sentence of death. Now it was a delayed sentence, right? Not immediately where they all die, but God said, I'll delay for 40 years. But these are going to get an immediate sentence of death. They're not going to die from natural causes. That's why Moses has this test done effectively, this litmus test, to see, okay, let's see, if you die of natural causes, you'll know that it's not me to be, me and Aaron are not supposed to be your leaders. But if you die an extraordinary, powerful death, if the earth swallows you up, then then here's the proof that you are not God's leaders. You are not the ones who are called to be God's mediator So the earth swallows up Korah and his supporters, and fire consumes the 250 men who came with unauthorized worship. Then in verses 36-40, through God has them make a memorial of His judgment, as He often does. He doesn't want Israel, the one to remain, to forget what happened. He doesn't want them to fail to learn the lesson. And so God creates a memorial of this judgment. All those who brought the fire pan... which was made out of bronze, those fire pans, just some metal object, were melted down and made into some kind of plating that they would put on the front of the bronze altar. And this way, every time a worshiper would come to offer a sacrifice, they would be reminded of God's judgment against unauthorized worship. Notice verse 39, So uh, Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned, had offered, and they hammered them out, out as plating for the altar. And here's the reason, verse 40, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. So here you go, Israel, throughout your generations. Every time you walk in and you see that bronze altar, you see that plating on there, you ought to be reminded of the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram and these men who thought that they could worship God in their own terms. Having seen God's justice and swift wrath against rebellion, you would think that, that no one from that generation would ever cross God again. They've just seen His violent and immediate swift wrath against their rebellion. You would think... Stories end maybe you know, a couple years down the road. They're going to defy him again. But notice what happens the very next day in verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Having time to consider the events of the previous day instead of learning and properly applying what God was teaching them. They evaluated the circumstances through a secular kind of worldview. That is, that God's not good, and that their leaders are not given to them by God. Instead, it was Moses and Aaron's fault that their family and friends had died. You were the ones who caused these deaths, and so, as we would expect, the Lord desires to kill them again. In verses 42 and through 45. He says to Moses and Aaron, Get away that I may consume them. But Aaron serves as the mediator for the people to show once again that he is God's appointed priest. Verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in the fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. So God's saying, I'm ready to destroy them all going to send the plague, Moses says, Aaron, go, hurry up, make an atonement for these people who have sinned against God. Verse 47, then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. Here's Aaron fulfilling his responsibility as God's authorized mediator for the people of Israel who is the authorized mediator of God's people. Chapter 16 says loudly and clearly, not Korah, not Dathan and Abiram. Abiram. It is Aaron who is God's mediator because in this plague, he actually causes the plague to stop with his mediation, with his his atoning sacrifice. But not before there is a great amount of people that die. Notice verse 49. But those who had died by the plague were 14,700. Besides those who died on account of Korah, then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. Surprisingly, the congregation did not learn from the rebellious and their swift judgment from God. Instead, they, they turned on the leaders. And so we learn several principles here this morning of them. Number one, those who reject God's authority want to be seen as holy. Those who reject God's authority, or we could say God's appointed leader, want to be seen as holy. See, those who reject authority, we'd expect they want to come across as rebels and just kind of have that edge to them, and they don't care how people think about them. But instead, we see here that they actually want to present an air of spirituality like Dathan and Abiram. They want to look spiritual even as they commit acts of evil that are opposed to God's clear will. I'm sure you've seen this in the churches in which you have been. I've seen this a dozen times, if not a hundred. That those who rebel against God and His leaders would rather appear to be holy than actually be holy. And before we start looking around at other people, we might want to look we want, might want to pick up the mirror because the reality is that the defiance against authority for for us almost always becomes second nature. And, and in the process of defying the, the authority that God has placed over us, we want to look spiritual. And this starts out from the time that we're, we're very young. As a child, we know that it is right to obey our parents. But we adopt the mindset of Korah and think that we can outthink our parents that we have a better idea of how to live. And when we're saying that we don't uh, accept the authority of our parents, we're actually saying we don't accept the authority of God. Because to defy our parents is to defy God. And God may not respond like He did with Korah with swift judgment. And so that actually helps the lie of Satan in a way. That God, God hasn't done anything about it. You've defied your parents. God hasn't destroyed you like He did with Korah, so it must be okay. But I would say that God's judgment may be slow at times, but it is sure. It is certain it will come. Your sins will find you out. And that leads to our second principle, which is to rebel against God's authority is to rebel against God. The fact is that once we get out from underneath the authority of our parents, our inclination away from submission and away from obedience to our authority does not go away, does it? It only intensifies. As adults, we think we have the right to resist our boss. We think we have the right to resist our government. We think we have the right to resist our church leaders. And I recognize there are exceptions, right? When your authority is commanding you to disobey God. But in most cases, let's be honest, our authority is not commanding us to disobey God. They're actually fulfilling the purposes of God. They're actually seeking our best. We may not not like their rules. We may not like the way that they treat us. But the reality is that God places all of our authority over us for our good. And our job is to submit. Look again at the text because I think this is critical to see how serious this sin is. Look at verse 11. Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And then verse 30. At the end of the verse, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. This was not a question of their resistance of a, of Moses and Aaron's authority. That was part of it. That was only a symptom. But the root problem was that they were resisting their God. They didn't like the way that God was doing it. God, I could do it a better way. I would choose a better leader over Israel than you. But to resist God's authority over us is to resist. God. And so we need to just call it what it is, don't we? When we complain or have a disdain for our authority, let's just call it what it is. When we stand before God and talk about how much we hate our authority, let's just call it rebellion against God. Don't disguise your rebellion and flowery ideas of spirituality when God has clearly spelled out what it is and what He desires. To rebel against God's authority is to rebel Against God. Number three, no matter where you are, seek to be faithful. It's interesting that Moses, the person who actually didn't want the position of leading Israel, was the person who had that position. He never sought to be leader over Israel, he tried to get out of it. He simply desired to serve God faithfully where he was, whether that was in Egypt or Midian or now in the wilderness. His goal was not to get a great position, power. On the other hand, Korah was the one who wanted the position, but he was not happy to serve God where he was. God had already determined who would be the leader over his people, and yet here he had, Korah did, had this great privilege, and he failed to appreciate God's use of him where he was at. And so let me just encourage us this morning that we ought to appreciate our present position that God has given to us. Recognize the great privilege that we have. If God wants to improve your position, if God wants to give you more name recognition, if God wants to give you more opportunities for influence, I think He's going to make that clear to you and others. But grumbling about our position should be the farthest thing from our minds. I mean, how can we complain about our position when our Savior came from heaven, had the greatest position anyone could ever have? And He gave up that position. He gave up the the right to be seen as the King of the universe and humbled Himself. No longer treated like God, people treated Him like a fool. And He did that so He could serve us. And so... I would just say to you, embrace the area of service that God has called you to now. Seek to be faithful in little, and perhaps God will make you faithful in much. But perhaps not. Like Korah, it was never meant for him to, get, to rise up to a position where he would be equal with Aaron or better than Aaron. God never meant to do that. But, but God did mean for Korah to serve him in the congregation of Israel and to do what God had designed. So, so be faithful in what you have right now. Maybe God will improve your position. Maybe not, but that's okay. Number four, we must approach God in His terms. This is the, at the heart of chapter 16 through 18, and, and uh, we'll spend more time talking about this next week. But for now, we need to recognize that God has authorized a specific kind of worship through a specific person. And the same principle for us applies. I'm not that person. Okay, just to clear all confusion... I'm not the one through whom you need to worship God. Christ is. We only worship God on His terms and through His appointed mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. You don't need a priest to come and worship God. You don't need a pastor. You need Christ, and, and we all do. And so praise God that, that we can approach Him on His terms. We don't, we don't need to seek any other way. Just like for Aaron, don't seek another way outside of Aaron to go to God we don't seek another way outside of Christ. We go to Him on His terms. How do you want me to come to you, God? That's how I'm going to come. Let's pray. Father, thankful for this uh, convicting and um, helpful story. Remind us of of the, um, the sins of rebellion that are constantly sprouting in our hearts. It seems as soon as we destroy... One weed of rebellion, another one pops up, sometimes even stronger and larger than before. So we constantly need to resist this, Lord, with the power of Your Spirit. Would You give us the strength to do that? Would You help us to put on the whole armor that You have provided? And and as we do, may we pray in the Spirit that You would help us to resist so that having done all, we will stand. We don't want to fall in the day of battle. We don't want to turn away from You like Israel. We don't want to resist the authority that You've placed over us. So give us the grace to acknowledge our sin and also to to accept Your means of coming to You. Thank You for Jesus, His mediation on our behalf. There's only one mediator between us and You, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. We praise You for Him, His sacrifice, His willingness to give up the honor and the position that he had in order to humble himself and and serve us by giving his life as a ransom for many. Lord, may we live our lives in service to you and to our Savior through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.